Good morning, good morning, and good morning to you too. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. This day is the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, and we know that in this time period between May 25th, 2020, when he was asphyxiated by Derek Chauvin, a police officer at the time, as three other police officers witnessed this crime, and it was videotaped on a telephone video camera with onlookers begging for George Floyd's life in a public spectacle in the middle of the day in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There have been over 1,000 people who have died at the hands of law enforcement. Over 1,000. The Washington Post records that since 2015, they began to log the fatal shootings. Shootings. This does not include people who are dying at the hands of police in other ways. For example, we're still under this cloud of Sandra Bland in Texas. So many dying at the hand of police. Think about it. George Floyd's death would not have been recorded as a shooting by police officers. So if we know there have been by the standards of the Washington Post investigative reporting, over 1,000 people who have been shot by on-duty police officers in the past year. Think about the number, like George Floyd, who have died by other means at the hands of police. It was in 2015 that the Washington Post began to log every fatal shooting by an on-duty police officer in the United States. That is because police departments are not keeping these records. The FBI has undercounted these encounters, fatal encounters, by half, the Washington Post reports. There's no legitimate data source that we can go to outside of the media held by our federal government. And even now, it's basically what information is put in social media that the Washington Post can find or in other media sources. This is a nation with so much media, so many government entities, and yet we don't know our government, local jurisdictions, behavior when it comes to the taking of lives by force. This is despicable when you think about the amount of social media available and the responsibilities we should have. This, I believe, should be part of the Justice Department, and I've stated this unequivocally in this program, that the prosecutor's office and the Justice Department should be required under penalty of perjury to report to the Justice Department and to the FBI each time the police officers in their jurisdictions have used fatal force. This should be a requirement, and we should push for this requirement. This is basic, and that is why I've said time again in my critical analysis of the role of the prosecutors, and we're going to discuss this today, because we have to focus on the prosecutors. Changing or reforming laws without requiring in some way that these laws be actually applied 
will not get us anywhere in the future. And I want us to think about this in the history of our policing. Our police departments began as slave catchers. They began as militia groups as early as the 1600s. One of these cases that you can look up as well is the case of John Punch. John Punch in the 1600s Virginia, in the colony at the time, and it was an English colony. Africans arrived in that colony in 1619. The colony began in 1607. Jamestown Settlement was the settlement that began in 1607 as the first permanent English settlement in North America. During that time period in which you had the arrival of the Africans, there were no slave laws at the time. Incremental laws were put in place that resulted in chattel slavery by 1705. That time period between 1619 and 1705, what we began to see in looking at our history, our legal history, is the use of the criminal justice system to subjugate people of color. At the time, there was diversity, but it was an issue of power, legal power, because those Africans, 20 and odd Africans who arrived in August of 1619, that arrival is recorded in the notebooks and journals of John Roth, who was the secretary of the colony in 1619. So when the colonists recorded the arrival of the Africans, it was one month previous to that, in July of 1619, that the legislative body had been created, the House of Burgesses, the representative body made up of the wealthy class who were landholders. The type of crop at the time was tobacco, a very labor-intensive crop. Those people who were Europeans who could not afford to pay their own way to that colony were indentured servants, poor whites under a system of what was called almost white slavery in which they had to, in order to pay back the money that was invested in them to arrive in this new world, they had to work under a contract of indenturement for no pay for a number of years sometimes five, seven, 12 years. And then after that contract ended, they were then full-fledged citizens of that colony to go about and start their own farms and begin their own lives. What were they? Competition. And so, bear with me, please think about this. We have the House of Burgesses, the landed class in need of labor, and they were not getting enough labor from the indentured servants who were brought by ship from England and Europe over to this colony. They needed more because this labor-intensive crop tobacco required it. However, any one of those indentured servants who then ended their contract became competition for that landed class, for the House of Burgesses, those representatives. These Africans arrived. They are not covered by the laws of Parliament of England or by any European country. Incrementally, the landed class, the House of Burgesses, the representatives began to create these criminal laws that would subjugate the Africans into a position of perpetual servitude, serving them. This 
1640 case, John Punch, is a case in which this African man, John Punch, runs away, flees indentured servitude with two Europeans. They are brought back. By whom? That is the beginning of our policing. They run away from the colony. A bounty hunter brings them back. That is the beginning of policing. That bounty hunter, we assume then that there is somebody who has been hired by the person for whom these three men are working. That person then has the responsibility to go find these three fugitives and bring them back so that they can fulfill their contracts. This is 1640. These three men are brought back by the bounty hunter and then the justice system at the time decides here will be the punishment. The two white fugitives, Europeans, are given additional years on their indenturement. John Punch, the African fugitive, is given perpetual servitude. Because he ran away, he must serve for life. It is that 1640 case written down for me to read when I go to the Rockefeller Archives in Williamsburg, Virginia, where I do my research. You can read about the case of John Punch. That is the beginning of our noted place of criminal justice, injustice, the disparity based on race. This also is the beginning, as we see, of our police force where we have people who are hired to apply the law, hired by the landed class to not only go out and do their bidding, but bring back as fugitives those people who are pressing for their freedom. I want us to think about this as we go forward and consider that our policing here is a policing based in the subjugation of people of color and the poor and with the knowledge and foresight and planning of the wealthier classes. This has been something we've seen when it comes to Native Americans who are fighting for their land. The Powhatan Native Americans were the ones who were on the land, had been there for millennia before the English arrived in Virginia. So in 1619, we have the Powhatan Native Americans, we have the Europeans from the United Kingdom, English, Irish, Dutch, we have the Africans all in 1619. So we've had diversity in this country from 1619 going forward and even before that, but the, the, where we began our foundation, our anchor for the United States is in Virginia. And that's why we start with that Virginia colony. We know that there were Spanish in the places like Florida. We know that there were other people in other places. We know that um, this was New Amsterdam. So the Dutch were, were in places like New York when the English fought the Dutch for what we have now, Manhattan in this region, that's when it was renamed New York, York being a northern city in England. Before that, it was New Amsterdam. I want us to understand that we've had diversity. What we've also had is a group of people 
who have been those who have been bought back in that period of time, paid for, asked to now enforce the laws that they, the landed class, have put in place. But what about the prosecutors, those people who have represented in court the community? Whose community? They've represented the landed class. They've represented the will of the people who are in political power. Not justice, the will of the people. And that is why as we go forward, we see that the prosecutors stood mute too many times throughout our American history. As people were murdered, as whites killed swaths of people of color, mass graves. You think about the, the, the dozens, dozens of black communities like Tulsa, like Rosewood, like East St. Louis, that were the, the, the point and, and the object of racial disdain where hundreds, sometimes thousands, besieged those communities, tore them apart, burned them to the ground. Where were the prosecutors? Where were the prosecutors when we've had over 5,000 people lynched in this country, burned alive? And the photographs, if you go online, you can watch photograph after photograph. They took pictures of themselves under the hanging bodies. Where were the prosecutors? So when we now look at the George Floyd Justice and Policing Bill, we look at any legislation for reform. If we do not include the prosecutors and reform in the way in which our country enforces its criminal justice laws, then we have missed an opportunity that will now haunt us for another generation. I have today a guest, Pam Means, and she and I are going to discuss prosecutorial discretion, absolute immunity, qualified immunity, and we're going to break down this issue because on this anniversary, these killings will persist. There have always been laws that said one cannot kill or take another life except under particular circumstances. There have always been people who are enforcing those laws, and there have always been ways in which those people in positions of power have used the prosecutorial system to either ignore the rights of the underclass or people of color or immigrants or the poor, and there have always been prosecutors who have gone along with it far, far too many in most of our nation's history. We'll be right back after this musical interlude. Listen to the lyrics of this song. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. in Houston He's been busy ever since It's been a long A long time coming But I know Change is gonna come Yes it will Oh It's been too 
George Floyd didn't hurt nobody. He was trying to comply. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know, no change is gonna come. Yes, it will. Oh, he didn't want no trouble. The laws even have to come around. It's been a long, 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 long time coming. But I know, know, a change is gonna come. Yes, it will. Listen, I can hear him call his mother, saying, Mother. in peace Somehow we gotta carry on It's been a long 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 time coming But I know a change gonna come Oh yes it will I said a change Change gonna come I know a change Here we have George Powell with a George Floyd song based on Change Gonna Come. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Marshall, and we are discussing prosecutorial discretion, absolute immunity, immunity. What we're having a discussion about is the role of the prosecutor in these police-involved civilian shootings, and there is no better person than Pamela J. Means. And she is joining me today. She is a partner with the firm Thompson Coburn in St. Louis, Missouri. She's also general counsel for the Michael Brown Foundation. As we know, Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri, giving rise to Black Lives Matter and so much that led us into where we are today. Good morning, Pamela. 
Good morning, Professor. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And so let's get into it. You are um, my go-to person to come to this um, for full disclosure. Pamela and I discuss these issues on a regular basis, and I go to her when I need certain insights. So let's get to the role of the prosecutors. I have given some historical background, and most prosecutors, of course, will say um, I've been too harsh. Prosecutors do a great job. They represent the victim in cases in which there's been um, a, a, a crime or an alleged crime and that um, it's it's not fair, one would say, it's not fair for me to be so critical of their jobs when it comes to policing. What is is happening between the time in which prosecutors, and I would say, are over-prosecuting the poor and people of color, under-prosecuting white people generally, and especially the, the white um, wealthier classes, but what happens when it comes to policing? Why is there such a, a, a difference when it comes to how prosecutors are able or unable, it seems, to prosecute police officers when it comes to police-involved civilian issues, especially shootings? Um, uh, uh, Gloria, I will say to anyone in your audience who think that your laser focus on prosecutors is unfair, truly don't understand the power that a prosecutor has in the criminal justice system. And I will be honest with you, you are actually the person who got me to focus in more on prosecutors as well. Prosecutors are key uh, because they are the ones that have the sole authority to charge or not to charge. They have the discretion of whether or not a police officer will be charged or not. The complication, Gloria, is is that often police officers, these same individuals, are used as witnesses in their other cases. So it's almost trying a person on your team. And we have seen in these types of cases that they use their discretion not to prosecute, and they use it based on what we saw the prosecutor do out in North Carolina. And that is because police officers have so much discretion and how much force they use, they say, I just can't get a conviction. I just can't get a conviction. And so they pass the buck on. But prosecutors are so powerful in this system, Gloria, that they are one of the two people in the criminal justice system that have absolute immunity, meaning when they are utilizing their judgment of who to try and who not to try, and when they're utilizing their judgment on what to put on and not to put on, they have absolute immunity from you bringing charges against them, from you bringing civil claims against them. They cannot even be questioned. They're the only people with the judges that I know that are above the law. Absolute immunity. So immunity means that one cannot be sued. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. So we have prosecutors who have prosecutorial discretion. And as um, Pamela Means has set out, that means discretion as to whether or not they're going to charge, what charges they're going to bring. When you hear about people um, pleading for, they'll say, well, if you take a plea deal, that is an offer from the prosecutors to the defense counsel for the client to say, well, instead of taking this, this higher charge, we're going to have a lesser included charge. 
charge, but that means you have to plead guilty to that charge as opposed to going to trial. And at this point in our legal system, we have the most litigious country in the world. We have more lawyers, more lawsuits, more court cases than any other country on the planet, bar none. And so we don't have a criminal justice system in which the defendants can all have a trial. It's not equipped for everyone to even have a trial. Our system would break down if yeah. even half of our defendants actually said they would go to trial. And so there's pressure by the prosecutors to say, take a plea deal so that we don't have to go to trial. A trial means a jury, judge, court personnel. It means all of the mechanisms that are required under the Sixth Amendment. So now let's go back to the police officer. As you said, yeah. the prosecutors and the police officers work it as, as a team. Why don't you just tell us, and, and I know that you are a person who does this work for full disclosure, not as your primary job. You have become very involved in something that I always say, be a weekend warrior, in which you <laughs> have a job in a law firm as a partner. Well, the first black person to be a partner in St. Louis's largest firm, law firm. But you have spent an inordinate amount of time studying this issue and using the resources for that firm to actually put yourself in a position in which you're very knowledgeable about these, these concerns. Tell us how, when the, in Ferguson, Missouri, how did that story unfold as far as what the prosecutors did and did not when it came to the death of Michael Brown? Okay, so, uh, Gloria, you, you make some very excellent points about prosecutors. I want to add also that the prosecutor also, independent of the police, has an obligation to investigate, to do their own investigation, to make sure that the charges that they're bringing, you know, you know uh, are appropriate. So they don't even need the police to investigate or do anything. They are the big kahunas in that wheel called justice, okay? And typically, let's say, let's take the uh, uh, Michael Brown situation. Michael Brown situation happened in a municipality in St. Louis County. So there are over 90 municipalities in St. Louis County. Uh, some of them have their own mayors and their own police force. And then there's a county police force also. Um, the city of Ferguson had its own police force, right? And so, and it had its own prosecutor too. And so that the prosecutors in um, in those small municipalities, they actually did a lot of the traffic courts and stuff of that nature. But if a cop was going to be tried, a murder was going to be tried, that is done by the county prosecutor, which was the white guy that was there, okay? So in this particular situation, the prosecutor gets to decide what evidence they make to they present to a grand jury. Uh, the best example of this, even modern day, is what happened in the Breonna Taylor case. We had the uh, prosecutor telling us that he presented certain evidence to the grand jury. Turns out he didn't present any of that evidence to a grand jury. He presented the evidence in a way that slanted it so that he could come out with a no true bill. So a prosecutor doesn't even have to go to a grand jury. He can make a decision by putting his evidence in front of a judge to make a decision that he's going to bring these charges. Or he can do a grand jury, and prosecutors have a joke that says that a prosecutor can get a 
indictment on a ham sandwich if they wanted to because they're the only ones presenting in front of a grand jury. And what they often do is, is go before that grand jury, present the evidence. If the grand jury comes out with a no true bill, that means you should not prosecute them. We don't find enough evidence here. And only the prosecutor is able to bring it back forth. Um, in, in, in the case, in the Michael Brown case, um, uh, 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 the grand jury, a jury was convened for several months, for at least a month. Uh, I knew uh, from talking to you and other constitutional law scholars that a no true bill was 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 uh, going to be evident. Why did I know that? Because I knew that the prosecutor here was actually helping Darren Wilson to raise money. Well, some people say, what you say? Absolutely, because um, the prosecutor's father used to be a police officer, was supported very heavily by the police union, okay? And anytime a cop is involved in a cop involved shooting and put on on a put on leave, nine times out of ten, there's some backdoor legal fund that are being raised for them. And so there was some stuff that was going on there and some contributions. And we came out with a no true bill uh, from a grand jury. And you know, grand juries are, are not released. Their the information is not released who they are. But the prosecutor was the only one in the room that was actually trying that case. But, Gloria, we have to be very honest that it wasn't just the prosecutor that didn't give um, 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 Michael Brown justice. But the but the big prosecutor is the U.S. Um, Attorney General. And at that time, that was Eric Holder. And if you look at well, the report that came out of the Justice Department, he's a big prosecutor. Um, his report wasn't that good either. And I thought that the Justice Department in that situation did a disservice. Now, they found that there was a pattern and practice of abuse um, that was going on in Ferguson, but they did not find it that civil rights, 1980, civil rights charges from the federal end should be brought. So we have prosecutors on different levels. We have the U.S. Attorney General, and then each state has a state attorney, which is like the prosecutor, and then counties have one. Here, we were dealing with a county prosecutor in the Michael Brown case in St. Louis. So, and I'm glad you, you mentioned a, a few things. I just want to tease it out for our listeners. First, under the Fifth Amendment, uh, a person has the right to a grand jury, or the grand jury proceeding is under the Fifth Amendment. And during that proceeding, a prosecutor goes in a secret session that there's the judge, not the defense counsel, as as, as um, Ms. Mean has pointed out. The defense counsel is not there. It's only the prosecutor, the judge, and the grand jury. The prosecutor then presents evidence to the grand jury, has witnesses who testify to the grand jury. The grand jury then decides, and this is not the, the petite jury, the size that we know of six or twelve. This is right. a much larger number. And then they make a determination based on the evidence that's been presented by the prosecutor whether or not they should return an indictment or the person should be indicted or a true bill. And in that instance, that's when charges can be brought against the defendant. Until that time period, if you use the grand jury system, charges cannot be brought because it's been determined under secrecy that this person, uh, th that the evidence does not rise to the point in which they could bring this defendant to trial. But the other way in which a person can be brought to trial is if the defendant on their own decides mm -hmm. that there is going to be enough evidence to try this person so that they could be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. These two mechanisms. When it comes to police officers, it is very rare 
for any uh, prosecutor to decide just to bring the charges against the police officer through a preliminary hearing. It's, it's basically this person is going to right. go through, the, the, the suspect, the police officer suspected of committing a crime, go through the grand jury process. In the, the case of Michael Brown, the prosecutor stated that he was acting as Freeman, that he was acting as a neutral party. Freeman is in Minnesota, that he was acting as a neutral party, a neutral party. That is not the role of the prosecutor. The very title prosecutor means that the person is there to prosecute on behalf of the victim. Instead, this on behalf of the state, on behalf of the on behalf of the people, the community. And the reason mm-hmm. why I say this, when I say the victim, the community, as well as the the, the state, is because right. when when a person is injured, it's not just the injury to that individual. When an individual is harmed, it's an in, it's an injury to the community. And right. so, therefore, the community is being represented through the prosecutor's office to to ferret out who has caused this this harm. And then and that's how the police officers are used to find the person who has caused the harm and then bring that person to justice. This and, is and, how and, our and, system and, is supposed to work. And, Gloria, can I say to you that it makes a difference who's sitting in the prosecutorial seat. Progressive prosecutors like Kim Gardner, as opposed to prosecutors like Dan, Dan, uh, um, Daniel Cameron in Kentucky, you see a big difference. Kim Gardner will not take a case in Missouri, the city of Missouri, from any police officer who actually has been charged with brutality, police brutality. She will not take cases against cops that have lied in the past. She has a Brady list that is, that is extensive. She will not prosecute low-level offenses of marijuana. She uses her power to do reform within the system. Take somebody like Leslie Bell, who took over the prosecutorial seat in St. Louis County, but he's doing nothing with it. You have a 68-year-old woman that got slammed who has uh, arthritis in her hands that got slammed to the ground, African-American woman in a Sam store because they believe that she and her son had stolen a television that they purchased and they knocked all her son teeth out and she's trying to save her only child. He won't prosecute those white cops from that area because he fears them. He won't prosecute the police officers that gunned down a young man at a, um, 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 at a, a mall in the city of St. Louis. So it doesn't matter the color of the person's skin. It matters what they do with the position. You got people like Kim Fox. You got people like the attorney general of New York, Letitia James, that are taking risks and they're actually doing things outside of the norm. She's not doing much on police cases, Letitia James, but the bill that she's bringing forward will change the nature of use of force. So it matters about the prosecutor that you have Sitting in the seat, Marilyn Mosby is not getting heat in Baltimore because she's a bad prosecutor. She's getting heat in Baltimore because she's doing her job for the people, and she's not allowing the police to actually uh, uh, beat the people in Baltimore and then get away well, with let's, it. She's prosecuting. Let's, okay, let's, let's, 
let's turn we're going to turn because we're running out of time and we have so much to talk about i want to turn to the difference between absolute immunity and qualified immunity Absolutely. many people Absolutely. have have talked about um well we want to change the standard for qualified immunity but there are three things working here we have absolute immunity we have qualified immunity and we have the standard under law for the use of deadly force let's That's talk right. about those three things we talked about the fact that the judge cannot be sued for what the judge does in the case, presiding mm -hmm. over a case. The prosecutors mm -hmm. cannot be sued. That's what we call absolute immunity. They cannot be sued for what it is they do. And there has been and there are movements and should be other movements to re-examine absolute immunity for prosecutors. And the reason why I say this is because there have been cases that have gone to the U.S. Supreme Court in which they found fault. The U.S. Supreme Court has found fault with the actions of prosecutors. And those prosecutors still kept their jobs and their pensions. Unlike police officers, they were not fired. They did not lose any of their respective resources. They, despite the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court found in their decisions that these prosecutors acted with racial, uh, racial uh, disparity, these people kept their jobs because they have absolute immunity. Then what is qualified immunity? Okay, and can I just add this to your absolute immunity, the definition? It means not qualified or diminished in any way, total. So qualified immunity is that there is some exceptions to it. And qualified immunity, you guys, only applies to civil cases. It only applies to if you, if you are hiring a lawyer to actually sue on the civil side for a police officer shooting your child or your relative. And so... Qualified immunity says that if an officer, if it's been found in statute or it's been found by a court of law that it was illegal for an officer to, to do something, and you have a case that's just like that, that you can bring that case. But if you, if it doesn't match exactly the statute or a case or a policy, then you cannot bring a case of qualified immunity. The third one we didn't talk about is sovereign immunity. And that's what governmental entities get. They get a sovereign immunity as an agency not to be sued if they didn't have prior knowledge of their bad act. So all of that is on the civil side. So one thing that, that has been said, and I think you've said it often, that you're not looking for qualified immunity as the first object Absolutely. of of, of your of protest or your, your sense of reform because qualified immunity means the act has already happened. I want us yes. to be very clear. Qualified immunity means the life has already been taken and we are now in a civil court in which a family yes. or an estate is fighting for damages against the police or jurisdictional entity. So we then are looking at a fine line. Let me finish. Let me finish. We're looking at a fine line and this is because we're running out of time and I want to get to another point with you Pamela means we're yes, going to have you come absolutely. back but I want absolutely. to get to another point the first is that when we look at the use of deadly force mm. the use mm. of deadly force is on one side that's the criminal side qualified immunity as Pamela means has pointed out is on the civil side after the force has been used the person mm. is injured or dead whether or not an estate can bring uh, a case against this person and will they be covered the the person within government in this instance the police officer will they be 
by qualified immunity did they fall within the qualified immunity another area very quickly that we see now in the George Floyd case is, is the federal government when it does act and we said under Eric Holder in the Mike Brown case that the federal government did not act I did not believe they acted um, with with enough propriety or strength mm -hmm. when it came to their power and I'm trying to be nice about it because <laughs> they they have to look at the standard under the civil rights laws under the federal civil rights laws which were created after slavery ended we we're talking about laws created in the 1800s because they knew that prosecutors were not going to prosecute they knew it back in the 1800s and so these civil rights laws though have a higher threshold that they must meet and so that's another issue when we're talking about other bites of the apple but i want to go back to the use of deadly force <laughs> Now, um, and we're talking with Pamela Means, who's a partner at the law firm of Thompson and Coburn in St. Louis, and she's also the former president of the National Bar Association, the largest black bar association in the world. Now, Pamela Means, when we come to the use of deadly force, I want you to go into detail about this standard. When can officers use deadly force? Uh, 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 Professor Brown Marshall, you are dean and a steward on this. You you nailed that. I normally say in short words, if you want to help me keep my son alive, tell the tell Congress to pass a national use of force standard. If you want me to get paid after my son is dead, fight for qualified immunity. The force that an officer can use is established by Tennessee versus Gardner, by the U.S. Supreme Court, really. And it says that an officer may use that measure of force that he or she believes is reasonable to stop the force that he or she perceives that's coming for him or coming for another person. That's all subjective and it's all judgment, which means then that the office and the, and the, and the Supreme Court has said you can't second guess the officer because the officer is in the heat at the moment. So that means the officer gets to use his judgment along with his all the discrimination he has embedded, and then he gets, and we can't attack that judgment unless it's just something that's egregious. So use of force to me is the standard. That standard, because it was set by the Supreme Court, um, Gloria, has to be changed by Congress. But let me tell you what states are doing that I find amazing. California has done it. Baltimore has done it. New York is seeking to do it. They're seeking to pass a necessary and proportional standard, which means that you can't start with deadly force first. Under this current standard, officers can use whatever force they believe. They can start with deadly force, shoot you, and never tell you to stop. But under the standard in California, it's a continuum. You got to start with trying to de-escalate the situation. You got to go to the next source. And deadly force has to be your last. And if you use deadly force and didn't exhaust all of those, you could be tried for excessive force. So excessive force is the key. This is why I, I know we can't get into this, Gloria, but this is why I have a problem with the George Ford reform bill. Do not allow them to feed us a piece of crock bull. And that is what that piece of law is. Since 2015, I said as president of the National Bar Association, use of force is the single most thing we should be talking about. And use of force has been absent from that bill since it was sent from the House to the Senate, Gloria. And that's and where I, the real issue and discussion should be. Oh, and, and, I, and use of force, we will get into use of force and that bill and why I think it's so important. And once again, and this is my, you know, I, I so point of pride, I, I so <laughs> admire the fact that we have an, a, 
uh, an African-American female vice president, but she's also a former prosecutor. And that's Mm -hmm. why I believe, as sponsor of that bill, that we did not see anything in it regarding the prosecutor's office, nor did we see anything in it regarding the use of force. She knows very well about these things, and it was not there. So I am extremely disappointed. The reason why I'm, I'm I'm going through with a quickness is because I want to open up the phone lines. I want people to be able to call in and ask questions and speak to this moment. And so that number, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877, and my listeners know I don't rush my guests at all. But in order to get everything in that needs to be in today, I need to be able to be able to get this um, this show um, and keep it on track because this show is so pivotal. Normally, we would have, um, we've had over the last several weeks and going on after this show, interviews with candidates of Manhattan DA. So those interviews will continue next week. But for this show, the anniversary of George Floyd hitting on the date itself, we had to make mm. sure we packed this show which is with as much information as possible. So 212-209-2877. If you'll please stay with us after this musical break, we'll be back with Pamela Means and your calls. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. His name was George, and he walked into the store because his money was low. They called him a criminal, and they called authorities. They put handcuffs on me, and when I tried to explain, they responded with the knee. I can't breathe. Your hate is choking the life supposed to be the land of the free look at me I can't breathe and I know I'm a strong black man but please don't be afraid of what you see just like you I'm trying to raise my family remove your I can't And we demand a change We demand it right now And the blood of the innocent Is crying from the ground Four hundred years of slavery Clinging to a dream When will reparations come? When will freedom ring? Keep was Dietrich Haddon, I Can't Breathe. Dietrich Haddon, I Can't Breathe. Another tribute to 
Floyd. We're here with Pamela Means, who's a partner with the law firm of Thompson Coburn and also one of our experts in the area of police-involved civilian shootings. You're on with me on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Good morning. Yes, yes, very quickly. We don't have a lot of time. Right. I wish I had been allowed to designate my monthly contributions because your program would have been one of them. Anyhow, I can identify my senior citizen in Bedford-Stuyvesant who was assaulted by the construction manager next door to me at 436 Lafayette Avenue 30 minutes after the inspectors left and issued them a stop work order. He physically handled me. I wound up with a tear of the shoulder and the wrist. The officers came and from the 79th precinct and said it was just harassment. When I went to the precinct, I discovered they had not reported anything. The assistant district attorney directed me to just sign off for the fellow to go for um, anger management. I said no. Well, he said the bosses had already decided that over on Skimmerhorn Street or Geraliman. I went to court. He refused to allow me to present the MRIs that showed the tear on the shoulder and the wrist. So I'm say- And then the, ca- the, the jury decided, based on what he said, because the case was sealed, I haven't seen anything, he said the jury decided that, um, no, it was nothing. I don't know the case was sealed, but I can identify, especially as a senior citizen. Mm-hmm. I had a witness. The officer, he spoke to the officers. They did not want to hear anything. Okay? So I have lived it Mm. right here at 434 Lafayette Avenue at the hands of this Jewish manager, construction manager at 436 Lafayette Avenue. And the case is there. They sued me for anti-Semitism, causing them financial and emotional distress and um, making frivolous calls to to DOB. Well, all all of the complaints are there on the stop work orders. I went to all the politicians. And I'm still here with my walls cracked from the cellar to the roof on the east wall, the south walls. The place is a freezer in winter. So I understand exactly what you're talking about. Thank you so much. And we're talking with Pamela Means, who's a partner at Thompson Coburn in St. Louis and has worked extensively with the Michael Brown Foundation as their general counsel. We know that Michael Brown is a teenager who was murdered um, by police in Ferguson, Missouri, that gave rise to what we saw protests then and then created the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you're on the air. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall and Pamela Means, my guest. Good morning. Good morning. My yes, name is good morning. Robert. Hi, my name is Patience Roberts. I'm with the New Black Panther Party in North New Jersey. Yes. Um, my comment is we are told to vote for people like Kamala Harris and Biden. Two people that we know are not going to do anything on the guys is better than Trump. That's not going to help black people. It's not a surprise Kamala would push a bill like the George Floyd bill with no teeth in it. So we need to stop telling people um, it's better to vote for these people. It's not. We're in the same situation, if anything, worse than we were when Trump was around. We need to organize our people. And if anybody out there want to do the hard work it's going to take for our liberation, you can contact me in North New Jersey at 862 862- New African Black Panther Party. Give that number again. 
Hello? I think she hung up. Okay. Okay. Well, I wish you would have given the number again. Um, I I don't believe that, you know, um, we're in a worse situation than we were under Donald Trump at all. <laughs> um, I, I do believe that people should vote. Um, yes, there are certain things that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will not do that will please me. But I think they are head over heels better than Donald Trump ever was in his wildest dreams. But I also believe that just because people are in positions of political power doesn't mean that we don't keep doing the work of what we want to see happen. And that means putting some teeth into the George Floyd Justice for Policing bill. What do you, what do you think, Pamela? You know, I agree with you 100%, but I agree with the sister on this end. I believe that if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris don't get the message that they need to do something for blacks, we were not in a 100-day plan. That was a mistake. They haven't passed H.R. 4, H.R. 1. They haven't passed anything related to African Americans. If they don't do something in these two-year period of time, they're going to see a tide turn that's going to happen in the 2022 election because young millenniums don't want to hear about what you're going to do. They want to see you deliver. But I do agree with you that we are not worse off than where we was, but I have not been satisfied with any of the things that have come out of this administration. And as much as I lobby for them to get in, that's how much I will lobby for them to get out. Okay, we have time for one more caller. Um, our, and can our, I say this? That our first time sister is... explained discretion at its finest. The first mother sister did. Yes, and that's and that is prosecutorial discretion, where prosecutors listen to your story and decide whether or not they're actually going to do the work to to, to one to investigate more. Yeah. And and then they decide, they, they look at the victim and they look at the, the person who is the object of what they believe, the victim believes is the criminal assault or, right. or the crime. And they weigh the power positions and they decide, is this group or this person too powerful for me to use our governmental resources? Is this yeah. victim someone I believe? And think about that in the rape cases, whether or not yeah. they believe this victim was actually raped, whether they believe that this person was assaulted, whether or not this homeless person who was assaulted by someone else deserved the assault. Yeah. When you start thinking about how a prosecutor will think, and I and I say this to my 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 students who are who are going into law enforcement, and that's why I know, and I and I'm, I'm saying this, I know the people I've seen go into law enforcement that these are people who want to do good. They want to do right. I've met them. I don't know what happens to them once they go through the academy and they get involved with a system that has been corrupt for 400 years. You can't put good people into a corrupt system and expect them not to expect be changed. To change. well, 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 but not we, only that, we have to understand that the prosecutors are paid by us. They work for us. Government employees. So just, they are they government are employees. But they get paid with our tax dollars. And we should be strong enough to fired the prosecutors when they come up for re-election if their record is bad we have to watch prosecutors closer we have to watch city council people who would vote for a union contract that has a four-day waiting period in there with police officers that give them a bill of rights but it don't give the people a bill of rights we have to watch that stuff Gloria, and we have to use our vote we have to be use our vote strategically and powerfully to send a message you know i, I 
you know, a lot of people got mad at me at the beginning of this cycle when I said Nancy Pelosi didn't need to be speaker. Schumer didn't need to be speaker. Uh, Congressman Clyburn needed to sit down and that they needed new administration and that Jamie Harrison would do nothing as the head of the Democratic Party. I've been proved right on all of it. None of them are pushing an agenda that actually impacts. The, and don't come talk to me about the stimulus bill. Because that's not why black folks voted for you. They voted for you to put in laws that would protect us. And sorry, presidential orders just don't do it for me. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. We have to have you back. And I look Absolutely. forward to having a continued conversation around the issue of the role of prosecutors. If I anything on this show to make people better understand the power of the prosecutor's office when we're talking about these police-involved civilian uh, catastrophes, tragedies, murders, and abuses, then I think that I've done something for the good. Thank you so much, Pamela Means. No, we have have to close right now. We have to close. Go by. We have to close. Thank you so much for joining me, Pamela. Thank you. And this is the end program on George Floyd. May he rest in power. I will see you on the radio.